Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another special edition episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Folks, we are talking about an animal that is making headlines all across the country here in the United States. We are going to be talking about the murder hornets, which actually the murder hornet doesn't even exist. That's not even really an animal. We're actually going to be talking about the Asian giant hornet today. On the show, I have a really, really great guest. His name is Miles Maxer. He's an entomologist and science communicator, and he is just just a wealth of information about insects. And he discusses the Asian giant hornets. Now, this interview is going to be just a little bit different, just FYI, because we literally jump right into the murder hornets or the Asian giant hornets right away. It's kind of what people want to hear. And I, I basically told him that we were going to do this so people can get the facts right up front. And then we were also going to put that portion of the interview on IGTV. So for podcast listeners, you'll notice that we just jump right into it. But please make sure to stay tuned after that. I think we end the Asian giant hornet conversation, I think at almost like 13 minutes, oh, actually 14 minutes, we end that conversation. And then we go into Miles's background and we start talking about ants. Now, some of you might be like, ants, really, Corbin? Like, can we talk about something bigger? You guys, please listen to this full episode because it is by far one of the most fascinating shows I have ever done. During this interview, I swear to you, my mouth was completely dropped. Like, I just, I, I, you guys, I mean, seriously, they are, ants are so fascinating. And I've, I've talked about this before that when I was in college at Boise State, entomology was just one of my favorite subjects. I learned so much about insects, about animals. I never really paid that much attention to. I mean, yes, I collect beetles and grubs and stuff like that as a kid growing up in the mountains, but I never... I just never was like, wow, these are like the coolest animals on earth. And insects, they're pretty cool. So I promise, give this episode a chance, especially if you are scared of insects. I promise you might have a new appreciation for them after you listen to this interview. As always, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to it, uh, possibly on Spotify. We also are on Pandora and all other major podcasting platforms. Another announcement before we get to the show is I hope you are tuning in to my animal late night show, Animal Nights Live. That is every Thursday night. We do it live at 8 p.m. Mountain, Mountain Time, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern Time here in the United States. We are now putting full episodes of the show on YouTube, so you can watch it anytime. And I've had such a fun time doing the show during this coronavirus. And, you know, it, it, it was kind of was like a, I know this coronavirus has been really bad. I mean, it took out all of our live animal shows. It took out all of our income. But I'll tell you what, the silver lining is that, you know, being stuck at home and, you know, having to be creative and thinking of new ways to do shows and to get out there and to educate people. It, the silver lining is I was able to create this animal late night show, which I love. And it's it's brought new life to, uh, anyway, it's, I feel like it's brought new life to me. That sounds so cheesy, but it really has. So check that out. Animal Nights Live. You can follow those social handles on Instagram and Facebook, and you can now watch full episodes on our YouTube channel. And I encourage you, I hope that you join us live because we have a great community of 
people who watch the show all around the world and you get to chat with them and you know we obviously bring on live animals and it's a really really good time it's like hanging out with good friends so if you are bored on thursday nights or you are just wanting some interesting content to consume check out animal nights live we also go over the animal news now animal news is a really really uh, it's a pretty popular part of animal nights live and i also started recording short clips of the animal news for my youtube channel which you can check out there I've been a lot more active on YouTube. I kind of rolling my eyes because it's like, oh, one other thing to do. But I think it's super important because it's great to get the animal news out there. And I just, you know, people have seemed to enjoy it. So check out all of those videos, like them, share them uh, with people and friends and family who might have an interest in that. Once again, Animal Nights Live airs every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. This is here in the States on my TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook Live, all at the same time. I hope to see you there. All right, you guys, let's cut to it. Let's get to it. I am so excited to welcome on the show entomologist and science communicator, also known as the Ant Explorer, Miles Maxer. Today, I am so excited because we are talking about a trending topic in the animal news. We are talking about the so-on, so-called murder hornets. On the show today, I have entomologist and science communicator, Miles Maxer, to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, Corbin. I'm really excited to be here. Dude, I am so excited to talk to you, and you just graduated, which congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, yeah. but I should tell my audience, so you have been working with insects for well over a decade. You've been keeping ants, which are in the same order as these, you know, hornets, and I just thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about what's going on. Well, you know, I appreciate that. I, I'm looking forward to... Uh helping people understand a little bit more about these uh, so-called murder hornets. Okay, I actually saw the really, really funny post on Facebook that was like, how do I attract murder hornets to live at my neighbor's house? <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, there might be some legal issues with uh, with that sort of strategy. Right? So, yeah, so let's know. just talk about it. What is a murder sure. hornet? So, well, first of all, a murder hornet is a thing that doesn't even exist. So, uh I can tell you that as entomologists, we would never refer to uh, these organisms as murder hornets. That was a, a title created by, I think, the New York Times. It's not one that's recognized by entomologists. So we know them as Vespa mandarinia. So that's the Asian giant hornet. And the Asian giant hornet is one of the largest insects on Earth. Um, and you look at these things and you're like, this must have been around with the dinosaurs and we don't really think that to be true, but they're incredible and they're very, very large hornets. So they capture the attention of a lot of people. Yeah. How big are they? The size I read of like a queen's the size of a matchbox. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's fairly accurate. Yeah. So a queen's wingspan is about three inches. Um, so these are very large. They're larger uh, than any kind of hornet species that is naturally found in North America. Wow. And so and so they're originally obviously from Asia. That's right. Yeah. So they actually inhabit many Asian countries, uh, including some parts of Russia, but they are not found in North America. They're really quite restricted to Asia uh, and very, very common in Japan. So that's the area that we have studied them the most, where we know the most about them. That information comes from research done in Japan. And so people are freaking out because some have turned up in Washington state. Right. Yeah. So this has been kind of interesting for entomologists because we've known about this for a little while now. And then the, the news picked up on it. 
And what happened is two uh, confirmed sightings occurred in British Columbia, Canada, okay. uh, around Vancouver Island, and that was in the fall of 2019. And then Washington State Department of Agriculture, they found two more specimens confirmed in December of 2019. So there's four confirmed sightings of them that all occurred in late 2019. Now, were these were these deceased specimens? Were they dead? <laughs> I, you know, I don't have the details on that. They haven't released a lot of information about it. Um, but uh, I believe that at least one of those specimens were was actually um, euthanized, essentially. It was found and identified as a non-native species. Um thus prompting a major investigation from uh, federal and state agricultural officials. So, they're, okay, why do you think the story picked up? I mean, because, you know, why? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, part of it is, despite a lot of misinformation coming out about it, it's a good thing that people in Washington state are definitely aware of it now because they're going to be able to uh, create a program where people can basically send in pictures. They can make sure that they know what the hornets are that are in their yards or in their homes, around their homes. Um, so it's a good thing for outreach that this picked up because people know about them now. It's unfortunate because we've got folks in Massachusetts who are freaking out over a bumblebee. Really, all we need to do is communicate to people in Washington state. Um, I think part of the reason that this has gotten attention recently is because it is spring uh, throughout much of the country. It's warming up. This is the exact time of year that we need to be uh, vigilant and, and looking out for these organisms. So, and I think most people are nervous about, I don't think a lot of people, I mean, some people are caring about the environment and the detrimental effects, but I think the majority of people are probably freaking out that they're going to be killed by this hornet. And I read somewhere in Japan, they kill like 30 to 40 people a year. Yeah, so that, uh, that, I believe there were 42 people killed in 2013, which was a year that had a major outbreak, okay. essentially, in Japan. They don't necessarily kill all that many people. And, and when you consider the population density of those areas, they're really not a major threat. You're more likely to, to die from <laughs> many other causes. A, a hornet is not necessarily high on your, your list. What does happen is that people who are allergic already to insect stings can go into something called anaphylactic shock. And that response can cause your throat to close. It can cause trouble breathing. And that is where a lot of the mortality occurs from insect stings. So it's not that the stings, the venom itself is super, super toxic and it just takes you out. It's your body's response to that venom. If you have an anaphylactic situation, that's when uh, you, you could see that kind of mortality occur. Okay. And, but it's having people, I mean, scientists are really, really nervous because this could really impact just our native animals. Can we talk about, I mean, and especially honeybees. I, this is a quote, a colony of Asian giant hornets can kill nearly 30,000 honeybees in just a few hours. It's absolutely remarkable. And that's where the name murder hornets actually comes from is that, uh, these hornets can essentially decapitate honeybees at an extremely rapid pace. And they've got these massive mandibles that just snips right through them. Um, and it's really an incredible thing to see. If, you, if any of your uh, listeners haven't watched videos of them doing this, absolutely, you know, go to YouTube, look up uh, Asian giant hornets and honeybees, and, and you can see the mass destruction that these organisms can have on a honeybee colony. 
Um, invasive species are a huge risk for the United States because we do so much agricultural work that we produce a lot of food. And that food can, and the production of it can be affected by invasive species. And as you know, honeybees, while they're not native, we actually brought them over from Europe, are really critical for a lot of our agricultural uh, systems. So if we have a new invasive species, like the Asian giant hornet, come in and attack our honeybee colonies, which are already suffering from colony collapse disorder, varroa mites, lots of different threats, that could really be the nail in the coffin for some of our uh, honeybees. But the good news is we're overreacting a little bit. <laughs> uh, we want to make sure that we take these hornets out. But at the same time, it's not like we've got a full-scale threat on our hands yet. Uh, we only had four sightings occur last year. Yeah, I didn't realize there were four sightings, and I actually posted a TikTok video, and someone immediately had to comment. And I think they only said that there was only one at the time that had been reported, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, this is, you know, crazy that we're just, like, freaking out that these are these are buzzing around, and, you know, and people are like, oh, now we have murder hornets along with the coronavirus and all this stuff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it captures the imagination of people, for sure. It um, it does. What do you think? I, so many people have like sent me the Coyote Peterson video of him being stung. What do you think of him doing that on YouTube? What are your thoughts? You know, so someone I really respect is Justin Schmidt, who did the Schmidt Pain Index. Okay. He had oh, lots yeah. of insects sting him um, for scientific purposes. And the unfortunate thing about Coyote Peterson, I think, is that. Um, it in some ways encourages people to do the same kind of thing, which as I was talking about earlier, if you have an allergic reaction to a sting, that can be an extremely dangerous situation. Uh -huh. um, what I can tell you is that these hornets are known to have a remarkably potent sting. It, it is a incredibly <laughs> painful experience to go through. And I think uh, Coyote Pearson demonstrated that in, in that video. Wow. Okay. So what is your end message for people, I guess, who are watching this? I mean, who are, I mean, should we be worried? Should we, I mean, what can we do to help? Well, so there's a lot of things that you can do to help. Now, first of all, if you're on the East Coast, just don't even worry about it at all, unless your officials <laughs> tell you that there's something to worry about. Uh, for those of us in Western North America, and in particular, Washington State, you just want to be vigilant. And, you know, if there's a three inch long wasp flying around, you're probably going to notice it. Uh, and if you do notice that kind of thing, report it to your state agricultural agency. Um, what I will say is it's very premature to just start killing large flying insects. And we've seen the really unfortunate death and reaction from people, which is understandable, of them actually killing something like a queen honeybee, which are all, I mean, I, I misspoke there, a queen bumblebee, mm -hmm. which are out right now trying to build new colonies. And those are our native bees. They're critically important to ecosystems. And unfortunately, because of some of the misinformation that's gone out due to this uh, the very rapid kind of pickup of this story, we have seen people killing insects that did not need to die. Um, and because we've already seen declines in insect populations, this is a really bad time for us to start just killing whatever we see. Uh, so my big takeaway for, you know, your listeners is just to say, if you're in Western North America, keep your eyes out, report any sightings to your Department of Agriculture. They've all put out websites at this point of how to identify uh, these murder hornets or the Asian giant hornets. Um, go to those websites, visit them, educate yourself, and then just be vigilant. Uh, it's not something to be afraid of. 
Yeah, we just missed something major. I just realized this. How did they get here? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, like we just like talked yeah. about this, and it's like, wait, this is the people sure. are like, how did they get here from Asia to British Columbia and Washington? So let's talk about some of the theories. Yeah, there, I mean, that's a great question, and it's not one that I think anybody's able to answer decisively right now. Um, invasive species, especially invasive insects, have lots of different ways that they can come to new new lands. Um, and, like, for example, Hawaii. Hawaii had no native ant species prior to human colonization. And when we came, they came. And that same sort of uh, relationship has existed with humanity all across the world. So invasive species are not a new concept, but they pose a unique kind of threat. And with this wasp, they probably came over in like something like a shipping container, maybe some agricultural products. There's also an interesting theory that people actually brought them to farm them to eat them because there is a, a, some culture built up um, in certain Asian countries of eating these hornets. And that's something that's definitely going to be investigated, but it's not necessarily something that we will ever get closure on. Um, they're eating them? I mean, are they yeah. like, are they frying them? Or are they eating the, Like, how, how are they? Can you explain how they are consuming <laughs> these? I don't understand why in Asia I feel like they're eating everything. Um, I'm sorry, but I just feel like they're just eat a lot of exotic species. And I, and I know that's not for everyone, you know, who lives in Asia, but how are they consuming these hornets? That's a great question. And, you know, I think that there's some variation on that. Uh, I definitely have seen some posts about them being fried. Um, I've seen also posts about them juicing the hornet. So essentially yes. extracting the liquid from the hornet's body, which I would admit is probably a more pleasant way to consume them. Um, and as an entomologist, you have the opportunity to eat a lot of insects. And it's not something that I get excited about doing generally. Um but one of the things about it that I think grosses people out the most is that hard exoskeleton, the carapace, <laughs> and crunching through the insect. So that is one way I think that they get around doing that is actually just taking the liquid from the hornet. And these are huge for insects, so they're going to have a lot of liquid. Oh, my God. I mean, so yeah. juicy them, which means I'm assuming they just crush them. That's my impression. Thank you uh, so much once again for coming on. I know we just did an IGTV talking about the Asian giant hornet. You reached out because you were watching uh, my live animal late night show, Animal Nights Live, and you kept on commenting and I was like, wait, an entomologist is watching this show and I was so excited. <laughs> you know, I have so much fun learning about uh, other people who work with animals. I've loved animals my entire life and uh, I've had the pleasure of following your work for about, about a year now. Um, and I've got a buddy over who's going to school at Boise State University, and, that, and that's how he learned about it. And I was like, yeah, I'll check this out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I – That was a lot of fun. I did some – I'm, by the way, super impressed uh, by you, by the way. Your YouTube channel is awesome. Your your, your content is great. I spent this morning uh, drinking coffee, watching a few of your videos. And so you basically – so you are, a, you know, as I mentioned, an, an entomologist, a science communicator, and founder of the Ant Network, a science communication company, and you're also known as the Ant Explorer. And can you just take me back? I mean, have you always loved insects? You know, Corbin, what I'll tell you is I've always loved animals, and I know you can relate to this. Steve Irwin really was my idol, uh, still is, a, a fantastic uh, inspiration, something I think about every day. And as a kid, he was always on TV talking about loving the animals that don't get that much love. So, you know, we've got 
pandas, we got elephants. People really love these some of these charismatic animals. But then, just as you know, you've got snakes, you've got crocodiles, and you've got insects. Uh, and these are animals that don't necessarily get as much appreciation from the public. And I ended up thinking, wow, insects are really cool. That being acknowledged, back in second grade, so early primary school, I was out on recess, and I wasn't ever that into sports. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of biologists can relate to. Oh, uh, yeah, me but, neither. Uh, it just wasn't a thing yeah. that was going to work out. <laughs> no. so, <laughs> and it turns out that's okay. It didn't feel nearly as okay at the time. Yes, but, yeah, uh, that is very – I'm yeah. happy you said that. If you're not into sports, that's fine. Do something yes. else. You do not have to be the all-star you know, quarterback. And, and now they're suffering from all these brain injuries. And Anyway, so we're fine. You can be – That's a, right. You can love right. science and, you know, okay, go ahead. Well, and, and Corbin, I'll tell you this. I, I was talking to a friend a couple of days ago and, you know, I was at, we were out hiking and I was like, you know, sometimes I think I can understand not like being a biologist. And then I go on a hike and it's like, I don't understand it at all. You know, I don't, you, 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 the natural world is just an absolutely fascinating place. Um, but I, I want to take you back to second grade. Yes. So I'm out there. We're, we're trying to play. I think it was soccer. I was the last kid picked. So I was sitting in the in the in the lawn, just kind of pulling grass, looking at ladybugs. Turns out I sat right on top of an ant hill. Didn't notice it, and they flooded up uh, through my clothes, started biting and stinging me all over the place. And of course, I freaked out. I mean, second grade, very young. Um, ran over to the playground supervisor. And she immediately took all of my clothes off, except for my underwear. Oh, my God. As you can imagine, that got a lot of attention. So at this point, there's literally hundreds of kids all around me. Oh, um, no. Watching, laughing. Also, many of them horrified for me because of being bit and stung everywhere. And the supervisor t- takes my shirt and starts hitting me, trying to get all the ants off. Oh, of shoot. So, of course, I'm sobbing. I run into the school in my underwear uh, go into the bathroom, get all of the ants off of me, and I hated ants for years. You know, <laughs> always loved animals, but ants was like, those guys wronged me. That was not cool. <laughs> so, and then about four years later, so sixth grade, our uh, teacher gave us a really unique assignment, and that was to learn about something that you didn't like. And then at the end of that assignment, justify whether or not you were right in not liking that thing or if you learned um, more about it and and decided that your prejudices were wrong. And I got an ant farm. And I have been studying ants ever since. I was just absolutely infatuated by them at that point. Um, And that's really been a huge driver of my career is that that very early experience. That is the neatest project I have ever heard in my life. A teacher made you do an assignment on an animal, something you did not like, and then see, that is so, wow, that teacher should get yeah. an award. I've never. I absolutely agree. <laughs> I think everyone should do that. I mean, that and, and at a young age too, you said sixth grade. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, and you learn to challenge your prejudices and, and realize that you can be wrong. And that's okay. And some really cool things can come out of that process. So you were obsessed with ants. They, yeah. I mean, this is just, yeah. I mean, they are so fascinating. And I mean, I, I still, and by the way, I can kind of relate. In college at Boise State, I took entomology to fill in one of my courses. And I was just over the moon about insects. I couldn't even believe it. I just, it opened up a whole world, which I had never even really honestly paid attention to. You know, I hear that a lot. People don't necessarily recognize insects as animals or, or something yeah. to, to be studied. But three out of four of you know, three out of four species on Earth that we have documented is an insect. 
Okay, there are 200 million insects for every human on Earth. Wow. So it's critically important that we understand a lot more about insects than we do. And just as we were talking about earlier with the murder hornets, if if people have a better understanding of what insects do in the environment and how important they are for our livelihoods, I think we would appreciate them a little bit more. Yeah, let's talk about how we can appreciate them because I know some people, I know a lot of people are listening to this thinking there's 200 million insects per person on Earth. And I know a lot of people are like, ugh. So, <laughs> Miles, let's talk about this. Why are insect, let, Why are insects good? So insects are... E.O. Wilson is uh-huh. a really well-known biologist and ant researcher, and he says that ants are the little things that run the world, and that's really true for insects in general. Um, we really love seeing something like African elephants, right, these big charismatic animals. We love seeing dolphins in the oceans. But if you want to talk about the animals on Earth that are the most important for uh, keeping ecosystems in check, it's insects. Um, and... Part of that is because they are so ubiquitous. There's, like I said, there are 200 million of them per human. So the influence that they have on ecosystems is massive. And if we respect that, I think that we will do a better job um, of producing food, of ensuring that our natural areas are healthy, our ecosystems are functioning. And one thing that's great about insects is that they are accessible to basically everybody. You know, I was in oh, yeah. Central Park last year. There's insects all over in Central Park. There's lots of different opportunities to kind of go on a safari in your backyard. And you see different insects. Some of them have been around since the dinosaurs, since before, 200 million years. Some, uh, And you can really, I think, start to understand how the natural world functions by looking at, observing, even keeping insects as pets. Wow, I've never, next time I'm in New York, I'm going to look for insects. I mean, by the way, in New York, I try to avoid insects. We've had like cockroaches in our hotel room. Dude, that has been, that was not fun. Uh, Insects in Central Park. That is, I'm going to, next time, I'm going to do it, man. I'm going to look around. I'm usually looking for turtles or rats. I mean, which you see a lot of, but uh, that's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it, uh. (laughs) <laughs> usually when I'm walking on the sidewalk, my head is down and that's not because I'm sad. I'm looking at whatever <laughs> running around on the sidewalk. But if you take a little bit of time and just look around, you're going to find insects and other arthropods and arachnids like spiders all over the place. And I think that recognizing that they are everywhere should give people a little bit of comfort that they're not actually as scary as our culture likes to make us believe um, because they are everywhere. And we don't necessarily have tons of negative interactions with insects. They're there making things run and we don't necessarily see it you might drop a ice cream cone on the sidewalk well you know who's going to come clean that up the ants they're going to come and 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 clean up that food and, and they do that in ecosystems all over the world they're basically the little janitors of the world uh mm-hmm. and without them our lives would be very very different i'll never forget when i was in i think oh, i was in biology 191 and we had we we had these beetles that we were working with who we were counting doing some population study or something. I remember one of them got loose and scurried across the, the the lab floor, and one of the students sat and just got up and smashed it. And my biology instructor, she was just horrified. She was like, "Why did you do that?" I mean, and she had an Argentine accent, which I just butchered. But um, yeah, but I was just gonna say, I mean, it feels like it's something we're taught as an early age that insects are gross or we should squish them. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. And, you know, there is some, there are some good reasons why we would react that way. There are dangerous insects, especially in kind of the homelands of Africa where humanity yeah. evolved. There's a lot of reasons why uh, certain insects or arthropods we would want to avoid. Uh, you still have something like ticks. Um, oh, God. That really can be quite negative for human health. So just like how we might have kind of a fear response when we immediately see a snake, uh -huh. that response is also probably ingrained in humanity. But our culture does nothing to help that. And that's one thing that I really want to do in my career is to help people understand the role that insects can play in our lives and that they can actually be a source of excitement and great beauty for us as we learn as children. Um, because I can't bring the Amazon rainforest to you. I can't bring it to some kid going to school in Chicago, but I can bring an ant farm. And that can open whole new worlds in, into their imagination about kind of how the natural world works and, and their role as stewards of nature. Yeah, so how did you go, and this is so fascinating. So you were born in Colorado, but you were raised in Idaho? What part? That's right. What part? Right. Northern Idaho. So Moscow, Idaho. Oh. Uh, I'll tell you that. That's where the University of Idaho is. Oh, I, um, oh yeah. You know, so I'm doing my very <laughs> best to talk to you, Corbin. Um, you know, I know you went to Boise State, and, and we got a little bit of a truce uh, going there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was raised in pre predominantly in northern Idaho, a little wow. bit in Oregon as well. Um, but definitely – spent a lot of time in the northwestern United States. U of I, and you just graduated, and it's a Sunday morning, and you're doing this. I am so happy that you are not still up from the night before. They have a reputation of being, like, the well, biggest party school. Well, Corbin, I'll tell you, I actually went to Montana State University. So oh. I'm over here in Bozeman, Montana right now. Oh, and, okay. uh, you know, we, we – we, the, the tagline for MSU is mountains and mines. So we get out a lot, do a lot of outdoor recreation. We have fun. Um, but – we're also very serious about our academics and really the role that we play as college educated people, um, something ingrained in us at MSU is that we actually serve the people. And that's something that I try to take to heart is that as an entomologist, as a science communicator, an early career professional, part of my role is to be a servant and to help communicate uh, complicated concepts to the public and give them the information that they need. Uh, to continue going about their daily lives. And that's, I'm assuming, why you created the Ant Network? Absolutely, yeah. Yep. So yep. the Ant Network stems from my passion specifically about ants. Um, and growing up, you know, going to high school in Moscow, uh, we had this program called ELI, or the Extended Learning Internship. And it was yep. our opportunity to basically have an independent um, study, uh, uh -huh. something that we can study whatever we wanted to and find a mentor and I studied ants. And I loved keeping ant colonies in captivity, which is kind of a difficult thing to do, but we've gotten fairly good at it as of late. And I would take these ant colonies with queens, with the babies, all that kind of stuff that you don't ever see it with those little toy ant farms. And I'd take them into schools. And now I've done over 50, I think it might even be 60 presentations wow. to classrooms, science camps, that kind of thing. And the Ant Network was born out of an idea of kind of bringing ants uh, more into the public's focus. 
And that's part of what we try and do. We do live insect exhibits, we do presentations, and then you can see those videos on our YouTube channel, for example, where we try and reach everybody, anybody who might be interested in the world of insects. Yes, and I was so impressed because you sent me the email and you're like, hey, if you have a chance, check out my channel and check out the video. And I'm like, sure. I go and I check out, you were in Madagascar on, you know, doing a research expedition and it was just so, it was really great. It was well produced. It was shot. It was in great quality. You're in Madagascar finding ants and trees. And I was really impressed. That was an amazing, uh, you know, short little wildlife doc. What was it like 13 minutes? Something like that. We try and keep them, you know, under 15 minutes so that they're easily digestible. And I really appreciate those compliments too. We, we try pretty hard to produce content that's exciting um, yeah and, uh, you know as high a quality as we can manage during those situations because we're still trying to do research and actually effectively doing research so it's uh, it's a balancing act as a science communicator trying to be a scientist and then also a communicator um, but you know we've been we've been doing our best with it dude I, it, I appreciate that. it looks great when I was in college I went to Africa for the first time in 2012 I just have my I have my handy cam and I'm I'm still happy with those YouTube videos but I mean yeah. that's what we had I mean I mean but you no know, it was a very good quality I if you are a listener I highly recommend checking out the and the ant network on YouTube and checking out those videos because I think they're just really really good yeah, thank you very much. Um, I got to ask you. Go ahead. Where in Africa were you? I've been to Africa three times in the past year. I've just fallen in love with the place. Oh my God, me too. And Miles, honestly, I wanted to drop everything. I've said this before. Quit this whole TV media thing and just be just become a guide. But I have, um, since you follow me, you know I have like thirty different animals, so I can't necessarily pick up and leave all my rescued reptiles. I, I just I can't take them with me. So, um, but I went to uh, Kenya. Yep, uh, um, okay. Mara. Uh, Lake Navasha, Lake Nakuru, and stuff like that. So, where did you go? That's cool. Yeah, so Madagascar, like you mentioned, yep, and then South Africa. Oh. Um, and my my most recent trip, I went on a lot of different animal adventures, and part of it was also me visiting a facility there called the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Hospital. Okay. And they are involved in the rehabilitation of pangolins that have been taken oh, from the wild. Wow. And. If you know much about pangolins, they are the most highly trafficked animal on Earth, which is tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And as an ant researcher, I was very interested in pangolins because that's what they eat. Pangolins are ant and termite specialists. So I got to go around, watch the pangolins forage in the wild and actually record which ants they were targeting. And that's an area of study that I'm really interested in pursuing in the future. Uh, I do need to note... um, just because the, wild, the the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Hospital is involved in it, uh, the pangolins are actually kept at a off-site facility. So they're not a part of the hospital itself, but they are part of that rehabilitation process. Wow. We just covered uh, pangolins in a, in a podcast a few weeks ago, and they are phenomenal. Probably one of my favorite mammals. I am... I am very, I've been begging the Turtleback Zoo because they have a few um, part, you know, for a breeding program to actually bring one on the Today Show because so many people are so unfamiliar with this scaly mammal. I mean, so many, you know, and I just think it'd be a great, great exposure. So fingers crossed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So let's just talk about some fun ant facts because I've listened to a few podcasts, uh, Varmint's podcast, which is a fantastic animal podcast. I don't know if you've checked it out, but they have an ant episode and it was by far one of the most fascinating episodes. I remember like my jaw was dropping with all these facts 
about ants and I'm a little rusty, a little dusty in my mind because it's been several years since I was in college taking entomology. So can we go over some fun facts, maybe things that some people might not know about ants? Absolutely. So ants, there's about 16,000 species on earth that, uh, that we know about. That's our best estimate. There could be up to 20,000 or so, but mm -hmm. uh, between 12 and 16,000, we're very, very confident there is at, at minimum that many species, which that's actually kind of low. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to insects, you have beetles, which I think are over 100,000 species. Um, and it's interesting that ants have become one of the most dominant life forms on Earth <laughs> without a ton of speciation. They are probably one of the most, if not the most, important groups of organisms for ecosystems, period. And without ants, we'd have a very, very different looking world. In the Amazon rainforest, for example, the leafcutter ants there can eat more than a more vegetation in a day than a cow does. Wow. And that is wild. They're one of the top herbivores in the entire rainforest system. And they're ants, right? <laughs> they're I tiny, didn't even but there's I didn't millions know that. and millions of them. Wow. And okay. another thing that's fascinating about leafcutter ants is they actually aren't the ones eating the leaves. They harvest those leaves to feed to their own special fungus that they grow deep underground in these little, in these chambers that are about the size of a, a softball. And they basically give the fungus clean, beautiful, fresh leaves, and the fungus takes it over and produces a little bit of food for the colony. So ants were among the first agriculturalists, the first farmers, the first architects. Uh, and every time that humanity thinks that, like, yeah, we're, we're doing pretty good, we're pretty cool, uh, we're the dominant animals, we need to have a little bit of a, uh, a ego check because ants have done a lot of the things that we think we're the first at doing. Um, it was really the ants that kind of pioneered uh, some of the complex social systems uh, that we know about. Yeah, I remember learning that fact years ago with the leafcutter ants, how they're farmers and they're not even eating those leaves. And I just was shocked, like, what? And then... I mean, just their, their tunnel systems and how they have different, I don't know, you know, they have bathrooms and play. I just, it blows my mind that this little organism is that, I guess, complex. Can I say that? Like that's, you know, it, they are. it blew Absolutely. my mind. Mm -hmm. And Corbin, what's so exciting about ants is that an individual ant really isn't that complex. It's sort of like a computer. It, it reads exactly. the natural world through uh -huh. chemicals, essentially, uh -huh. and different inputs different experiences it has mm -hmm. result in different outputs or different behaviors. Mm -hmm. But when you put millions and millions of these things together, working together towards a goal, that's when, you know, mind blown because you see just how complex these systems can become. And it's been really valuable for humanity actually to watch and learn from ants. They have helped us learn about uh, antimicrobials. They, uh, we research how they keep their colonies free of bacteria and that, helps us uh, maintain healthier hospitals. We watch how they get food efficiently, so they effectively go out into the environment and forage. We've learned about that. Some of our transportation systems are based on algorithms developed from ants. Wow. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to get people excited about the natural world is ants are just one example of tons of different organisms that are doing fascinating things that we can actually learn about and learn from. Uh, so humanity benefits from that kind of, of research. Absolutely. So you have trademarked the ant explorer, which I love. So 
It's very, okay, just, okay, from my experience, because I I started out with reptiles, so it's very easy for me to be like, I'm so passionate about reptiles when I have a, when I'm holding a 13-foot python. Is it hard to get people engaged when you are the ant explorer? Are people almost like, wait, are you serious? (laughs) Well, Corbin, there's a lot of variation there. I'd say about half the people that we interact with are, right from the get-go, absolutely fascinated. They're like, really? You know, you are studying ants? Yes. Uh, and but it's not necessarily a negative reaction. It's like, oh, that's really cool. I want to learn more. And then about half the people are like, oh, that's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> and really, my role, my job, is to bring both groups of people kind of together and to open their minds a little bit about it. Uh-huh. One thing that I will say, I'm a little jealous about uh, the, the biologists and the wildlife presenters who have large animals, is that it's really hard to show people really small organisms. It takes a lot of equipment, a lot of training, a lot of um, experience and experimentation for us to be able to get the right kind of shots of the ants that will show you this is why they're so cool, right? You can see the behavior. Um, one thing that we did in Madagascar is we found the snapjaw ants. And the yep. snapjaw ants are actually known as the fastest animals on Earth. And that's not because they run super fast. They're not going to outrun a cheetah. But what they do is their jaws, when they snap together, it's the fastest action we've ever recorded from a living thing. And we were able to show that a little bit uh, on camera. And then we also have colleagues like Adrian Smith at North Carolina State University who does high resolution, super, super slow motion video. And what's exciting to me kind of as an entomologist and a science communicator is that technology is finally getting there so we can actually show you some of these really amazing things. Um, But it remains a challenge. It's, it's a difficult thing to do, but it also is really exciting when it works. It is. And I'm going to be honest with you when I am, you know, watching, you know, David Attenborough on the, the BBC or watching planet Earth or watching, you know, they had a series life, which I'm sure you've seen. Some of my favorite segments are the ones with ants or with insects when they get those cameras in there and you're just, you're open up to this whole world. And it's like, those are my favorite. I would honestly almost I mean, I've seen a cheetah chase and kill a wildebeest so many times, or a young gazelle so many times. That fascinates me more, honestly. Well, you know, it fascinates me more, too. <laughs> and uh, what got me into biology was, you know, the David Attenboroughs, the Steve Williams yes. world, which you know, I will always be appreciative of. But as I consider the, the things that I'm hoping to accomplish through a career, uh, especially in terms of getting people excited about insects, I'm really excited about getting those kinds of shots. And like, for example, with the Ant Network, we have this lens that's like, it's like 16 inches long or something, and it's called a probe lens. So it looks like the barrel of a rifle, but we can actually put it down into ant colonies. And we do that at one point in both our Madagascar video and the hunt for the wood ants. And we're able to show you kind of the inside of the ant colony. And, And that's the kind of technology that we've only had for probably a couple of decades. And it's never been accessible to people until a couple of years ago. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember watching and my mom. Hey, mom. She's a big fan of the show, as you can imagine. She always would be like, Corbin, how do they get those shots? I mean, seriously, you know, when they're in the when they're following the worker ants back to the high. I mean, it's just I'm, I'm assuming just intricate cameras and, you know. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> you get a lot of bad shots. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you sometimes you get that one shot wonder, but generally it'll take a couple of hours on site to really get the right kind of shot that shows the behavior that you're trying to show people. Yeah. Um, but it's all worth it. it yeah. It's absolutely worth it. I agree. And uh, 
you know, you mentioned your mom. I, I think it, it, it's appropriate to give a, a shout out to all the mothers out there. Yes. Uh, this is Mother's Day. And um, I also wanted to talk about what it's like to be an ant mother. So a queen ant. Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the queen ant, there are some ant species where there's multiple queens in the colony. But like your standard, normal ant colony is going to have one queen. And that queen is going to be the mother to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and in the case of something like leafcutter ants, millions of daughters. And what's incredible is that she is able to produce all those eggs in her lifetime. What a lot of people don't realize is that ant queens are very long-lived. I think the longest-lived one that I know about was 28 or 30 years old in a German laboratory. We believe that there are some wild species that haven't been observed in laboratory settings that probably live even longer. So they are among the longest lived insects on earth. She's like the actual queen. She just never, she's still kicking. That's right. Yeah. And one misconception people have about uh, ants is that the queen's in charge and there's probably no ant in the colony that has less power than the queen. She's really does what she's told by the workers. Uh, And what's fascinating about an ant colony is that it is, kind of a straight up democracy uh-huh. where if they want to say move to a new nest site, they have to convince over half of their population that that nest site is better. So they'll actually take them there. They'll go and evaluate it themselves, make a decision. And, and it's sort of a voting process that they go through. And that's fascinating, right? There, there are other animal species that we really know about that actually sort of vote and, and work in a way where you could have tens of thousands of individuals in a society and then they vote on what to do how do they vote i mean they just they they obviously don't have ballots but how does an ant vote (laughs) no no and there is uh some some voter fraud that occurs in ant colonies (laughs) just like in our society yeah they try and sabotage the will of the 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 people the ants um Uh, but uh, uh, one thing that they do is they, they actually will take their sisters to the new location. The sister will evaluate it for herself. And if she likes it, she will become a part of kind of the group that's trying to convince the other one. So she'll go and get other sisters and recruit them. So it's like a grassroots movement that just keeps going on until they reach a critical threshold. Uh, but you're right. They, they don't cast ballots. So they don't necessarily say, hey, I want you to vote yes on Prop 84. But they do uh, essentially have a voting system on, on where they live and, and what things they kind of prioritize, which is incredible. So what happens if someone – what happens if a queen dies and there's millions of other you know, female ants? How do they decide, oh, you're the next queen? Well, Corbin, uh, that does occur in a couple of ant species, but in almost every ant species, when the queen dies, that is the end of the colony. No. So, really? Yeah. So another ant can't just become queen. Um, there are a few primitive species where that sort of does happen. There's something called gammergates, but I won't get into that because it's really complicated. Yeah. But for the most part, if a queen ant dies, it's over. And what they have to sort of hope for is that over the years when that colony released new winged queens and males to go and mate, that they were successful in spreading their their genes across the environment. It's over? I mean, will the ants move on to another colony? They'll die? Yeah, and anecdotally, I don't know that we've necessarily demonstrated this scientifically, but as someone who's kept ants for over 10 years, when the queen ant dies, the whole colony just sort of ceases to function where the workers almost look depressed. They just kind of like go into this depressed state and the whole colony will die within a couple of months. And that's a fascinating thing that they sort of just know that it's over. 
Um, one thing that some ant species do is the worker ants, they don't have um, sperm. So they uh -huh. can't fertilize eggs. They can't produce a new queen. But what they can do is lay unfertilized eggs. And in the group Hymenoptera, which are ants, bees, uh, sawflies, and wasps, an unfertilized egg actually becomes a male. So in those cases, some of the worker ants can actually lay eggs that will become male ants. And those male ants might disperse into the system as sort of like a one last chance uh, of distributing the genetic information. But that's a, a fairly uncommon strategy. I, my mouth is dry. I didn't realize that after the queen's gone, it's over. I mean, is that why I'm assuming, obviously, the queen's like always super protected, right? Is she usually like deep underground? I mean, the queen's the VIP. You know, of course, I think the, the Secret Service can learn a little bit from from ants because the queen is completely surrounded uh, in a species that has a soldier. She'll have soldiers all around her. And okay. she's really deep in the colony because she's the most valuable asset. Right. If if she dies, the colony's over. And in terms of oh. biology, that's usually about passing on the genes and they can't really do that without her. So she's really critical. Um, and it's really important for them to make sure that she's well fed. She's got water. She's at a good temperature. And for northern ants during the winter, what the colony will do is they'll actually ball around the queen and vibrate very slowly. And that produces just enough heat to help her stay around. Another thing that ants do uh, in northern areas, like carpenter ants, for example, produce something called glycol. And that, it, while it's in their blood, it interrupts the freezing process. So it's like an antifreeze uh, that is in their body that keeps them from freezing during the winter. So some ants have that, other ants just go really, really deep down. And a lot of people don't know, but it turns out like a couple feet down in the soil, it's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It's actually warmer than you might think. Um, so they can withstand the winter that way. Does every ant species have a queen? Um, basically. Okay. Yeah. You know, the, the, <laughs> there's this thing about ent uh, entomology and really biology where it's like, you can't make any kind of generalization because there's all <laughs> one of the, the one of the fundamental characteristics essentially of ants is that there are reproductives and non-reproductives in the colony, uh, that they are a, a eusocial insect by nature. So there are the queens, there are male ants, and male ants, by the way, they look like wasps. If you saw a male ant, you probably wouldn't even know it was an ant. Um, and they're only present in the colony for a couple of weeks every year. So we barbecued last night and my wife was like, oh my God, there's ants. And I was like, babe, it's fine. Anyway, um, we live out in the country, but they're the little black ants, right? Uh, so were those, and they were eating little bits of charcoal, whatever we had dropped. So those were not, were those our worker ants? Those would be the worker ants. And the worker ants are all female. They're all they're sterile. They're all female. Yes. Really? Uh, and male ants, like I said, they're only present for a couple of uh, weeks in a year. They're winged. They've got tiny little heads. And their, whole, their only role is to mate. So every ant that pretty much anybody has ever seen, aside from somebody who studies ants, uh, is going to be a female. And that's really exciting also to tell little girls and, you know, when, when you're doing classrooms, like, yeah, that cool soldier ant there, that's a girl. It's kind of empowering, I think, uh, to, to admit that this entire society essentially functions as a bunch of uh, females. I, it's going to start a new feminist movement. I mean, if we, <laughs> they're, they're well, they're way ahead of us. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I had no, okay. So they're all females. Okay. Blowing my mind with all these facts. So how long is an ant's lifespan? So that ant that was eating our barbecue charcoal, whatever, how long would that little soldier ant live? 
Sure. Uh, so a worker ant or a soldier ant, uh, about a year. Um, a year? Carpenter ants, it can be up to maybe two, three years. In some of the smallest ants, like the invasive Argentine ants, they only live for like a month or two months, something like that. But on average, a worker ant will live for a year. And on average, a queen ant will live between 15 and 20 years. Um, but there are exceptions in, in both uh, but, circumstances. So how, okay, so how does a new colony start? I mean, obviously, so it just obviously takes a queen, but how is this a chosen one? I mean, I'm just yeah. so fascinated by this. So, and this is happening probably right now. Uh, it's very okay. common for this to occur kind of right this time of year. And I just got reports of this happening in Boise too. Oh. And what happens is the colony will produce queens and males. And okay. both of those are in the alate form. And alate in entomology means that they're winged. Okay, so they have wings. They kind of look like wasps. They're like these weird little wasp ant hybrids to people. Um, and what they do is they wait until the spring or summer where there's a big rain and then it's warm, like 75 degrees. It's humid. It's nice out. And they all come pouring out of the nest. They fly up high in the air in this huge kind of ball of flying ants and they mate. And the male ants will mate uh, with the queens, and the queens will actually mate with multiple males because they want to get lots of sperm to store, essentially, so that they can produce a colony with even hundreds of thousands of worker ants. So after that happens, the males die immediately after mating. Their only role in life is to mate. So they fall to the ground, they die. They're done. And the queens fly to the ground, and they sort of, it kind of looks like they just shrug their shoulders. Their legs kind of come up. And they got these little hooks, and they just unhook their wings, and their wings just fall right off. What? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a sight to see. So the wings just pop right off. They're like mechanic. It's like a Lego brick. You know, they just pop. Boop. They're gone. And the queens go. They dig a hole in the ground, uh, lay eggs, take care of those eggs until they hatch into larvae. They feed the larvae. And what they feed the larvae, this is so fascinating, Corbin. The thorax of the ant is full of wing muscles for that nuptial flight, the mating flight that they go on. Okay. Well, when you take your wings off, you're never going to use wing muscles again. <laughs> that, that's over. So they metabolize the wing muscles and turn it into this nutritious soup, essentially, that they regurgitate to the larvae. So the larvae are fed on this, like, high-protein diet. They, in, in turn, uh, kind of hatch or, or eat clothes and go into a pupal state, and then they hatch into worker ants. And those worker ants will then immediately have to go and get food. And that's really how a new colony starts. And that process is taken on uh, is taking place right now all across North America and uh, the northern hemisphere. You know, Miles, I've this show's in its third season and I have we're almost we're nearing 130 episodes and I have never my jaw has never been more dropped learning about animals on. I'm just like, what? That is so fascinating. Well, I agree. <laughs> I just, you know, I, it. These are the kinds of things that you, you can't make them up, right? No. There's a the, the truth is truly stranger than the strangest fiction. That's a saying that I really like, um, because you, know, you have writers who work on movies like Alien or whatever. Yeah. Well, a lot of what they come up with is actually observed in the natural world. There's parasitoids that will lay eggs in a caterpillar, for example, and they'll burst out just like the alien does in the movie. Um, you know, spoiler alert, but I think it, it's been long enough <laughs> for that film to, to discuss it. Um, and I think insects are a particularly fascinating group of animals because in some ways they couldn't be more different than us, but in the case of something like ants, they're also very, very similar. You know, they live in these social societies. 
Yeah. Okay. So we're going to totally change topics here. You also have eaten ants. I have. Okay. That's right. Uh, So um, I've eaten ants on a number of occasions. Uh, There are some ants that are actually enjoyable to eat, or at least particularly enjoyable to eat, and those are the honeypot ants of the southwestern United States. And if you have never seen a honeypot ant, you've got to look them up. They're incredible. And what they've done is these ants have evolved to store liquid in their abdomens or or their gasters, basically. Uh And they take in nectar from uh, flowering plants during the kind of the the wet season down Uh in the desert. (laughs) And they feed it to these specialized ants called repletes. And the repletes get so swollen, they're like grapes, and they're they're see-through, they're translucent, so you can see all the liquid inside of them. Well, it's just sugar water, Corbin. Yeah. Uh, And I I know this might sound gross to some people, but you eat one of those, and it's just like, it's just super sweet. It's like having a candy. Um, So I've eaten those ants before. Like alive, obviously? Like alive? You just pop them in? I do have have a friend who preserves them in flavored alcohols as well. Oh, my God. uh, um, I've got a new friend that I made, uh, Chef Joseph Yoon, who is kind of pioneering the edible insect uh, movement in the United States. At least he's a big part of it. And uh, I think the picture you're referring to we had on our social media was actually me eating ants on an apple. Yes. And part of his messaging is that insects should and can be a part of our diets. Um, I'm not necessarily sold on that, but... It's not the worst idea in the world. And a lot of cultures, like we were talking about earlier with the, with the Asian giant hornets, readily eat insects as, yeah. as uh, part of their diet. But is there – okay, is it hard for you though? Do you feel bad? I mean because you're so passionate about ants. Is it hard to be like, I am so passionate on the ant explorer and, oh, look, I'm going to have a bite of this because this is going to be good. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I definitely – the first time, Corbin, that I ate a honeypot ant, I felt terrible. Okay? Uh-huh. But what I've learned is that as an entomologist, you sort of have to understand that in order to appreciate and and research these animals, you actually have to kill a lot of them. That was something that was really difficult for me. Oh, yeah, as yeah. Becoming a researcher and a scientist, that you actually have to kill a lot of insects to preserve them and to really study them. Oh, yeah. I, I dealt with early on in, in my college career is, is like, can I do this? And... Eventually, I, I sort of figured out, yeah, I can rationalize it and understand it, but it's a challenge. Yeah, because I remember in entomology, we had to go out and collect insects, and there were people who would catch these butterflies who just couldn't do it. They were like, I, I can't do it. I can't. It's too beautiful. It's a beautiful butterfly. They can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's sort of a necessity as an entomologist. Absolutely. Well, we're nearing the end of our interview. It's an hour. Miles, this has been such a fascinating uh, discussion, and I would love to have you come on maybe in a year or so, and let's fill us in more on some crazy ant facts. I'm sure my listeners found this just as interesting as I did. Absolutely, Corbin. Thank you for for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then I'll include the links to all of your social uh, channels and the the Ant Network on YouTube. Once again, listeners, go check it out. It's some great videos. And Miles, like I said, I'll include the link. So if people have any other questions for you, they can contact you directly. That sounds good. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.